0: Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. This week at the conference in Gladeville, the Embracing the Truth Conference, I think that is, if not my favorite conference each year, certainly in the top two or three. The people out there are very kind and very friendly, and they've let me teach out there for a number of years now. Every year they assign me a topic This year, they assigned me the topic of eschatology, a couple of subjects of eschatology, because, you know, they know how I avoid controversy. (laughs) So I taught for one day on the rapture of the church, and the next day on the tribulation. And those messages will be up on the website and in the Facebook group Uh, Later today, when this Sunday message goes up, if you're curious, and then the messages from the entire conference will go up on the Embracing the Truth website, which is actually the conference website. Let's see, what is it? Sovereigngracebibleconference.org, all one word, and so they will be up in a couple of weeks. Those have all got to be processed and made into MP3s and uploaded and all that. So they will all be up there. I will encourage you, when they are put up, to listen to Roger Skeppel's teaching on the Holy Spirit and the infilling of the Spirit. Uh, Very good stuff. Not that there wasn't other good stuff. But it is always a joy and a pleasure for me any time that I get to teach with men like Roger Skeppel, David Morris, who you heard last week standing here. Anytime that my name is mentioned in the same sentence as those two men, I feel like I'm in good company. You can turn to Romans chapter 4. We will get there eventually. Because David was here speaking last week, I didn't get a chance to talk to you a bit about where I was the week prior, because some very important lessons for me came about in that week. Uh, You all know already that my mom is, she's been moved into hospice. She's just barely this side of vegetative. Her eyes don't focus. She can't speak. She can't communicate. She groans. She, with her right arm, can reach out and put her hand on something. And that's about the extent of her movement at this point. And so my daughter and I went down to see her last week, just prior to David getting here. Basically, so that I could say goodbye. In many ways, it's already too late. My daughter said to me, how are you going to feel when you lose your mother? And I said, oh, I lost my mother a long time ago. She's still kind of here on the planet, among the dying, but soon she will be among the ever-living. Now, when I looked at her in her bed there in Moundville, Alabama, the little town of Moundville, Alabama, There is a nursing home there, and that's where my mother lives in a little room that is smaller than my bedroom. That's where she's been for the last almost three and a half years in this little room, and that's her whole life. You all know that GCA would not exist in its present form if it weren't for my mother. She used to sit right over here where Conrad's sitting. I'm going to tell you a quick story, and I hope you don't mind because I'm going to do a bit of reminiscing, but this story is really about us. It's about how we got here. Uh, Years ago, when we were still meeting in my living room, we were looking for a building to buy, a place where we could meet, a public place, or at least a plot of land that we could buy that we could put some kind of building on. This land over here where you're parked was originally horse land. There were miniature horses over there, little tiny little miniature horses the size of dogs. And so the land was messy. There was a barn over in the corner, and you couldn't build on that land because of the high-tension wires that run across it. As a consequence, that piece of land right here on this busy street was unused for anything other than horses because you couldn't build on it. We went to the city and asked if we would be able to build on it if we built on this side of the land rather than in the center. The city agreed. The people who owned the land were trying to get rid of it. And so land values at that point were about $100,000 an acre up and down this street. That acre of land over there, $20,000. Because you can't build on it. You can't do anything on it. Once the city agreed that we could build on it on this side and park under the high tension wires, our only problem was we needed (coughs) $20,000. Now, back story real quick. My father used to own a McDonald's in Shelbyville. And once he opened his McDonald's there, the first real fast food place in Shelbyville, Tennessee, when he wanted to advertise, he saw that on the way into town, there was a billboard, and he wanted to advertise on that billboard. So he went to the owner of the billboard, who knew that dad was a new guy in town who owned a McDonald's, so he saw a cash cow ahead of him, and so he jacked up his prices for my dad to advertise on that sign. But that sign was located in the perfect place. So my dad went and did a little bit of research and found out that the sign was sitting on a piece of land. And he went to the guy who owned the piece of land. And that piece of land had high tension wires across it. You couldn't build anything on it. So the guy who owned the land was trying to get rid of the land because he couldn't get his money back out of it. So my father, who was upset about the man who owned the billboard, went and bought the land so that the man with the billboard had to pay rent to my dad. Well, you can believe he suddenly made a sweetheart deal. So dad was advertising on that sign. Now, I tell you all that because after my dad passed, my mom was also trying to sell that piece of land. Nobody was buying it. It was for sale for a couple of years. Nobody would touch it because you can't build on it. All that has on it is the billboard. So we needed $20,000 to buy this piece of land over here, which was a great deal. It was a steal. And the land looks so much better now than it did back then. It was all mud and horse and barn, and it was a mess. So we needed $20,000. My mom came to me one day and said, If the city will let you buy that land, if you can make a deal, I'll pay the money. I'll pay you $20,000. I'll contribute $20,000 so that you can buy that land. She did that. We bought the land. A week after we closed on that land, somebody bought the land in Shelbyville from my mother. You know how much for? $20,000. My mom got her money back in a week because well that's God and it reconfirmed to my mom that what we were doing here had value she had begun meeting with us while we were still in the house I have pictures of my mom here painting walls when we moved in so I tell you all that in order to say my mom was really committed not only to this church because her Son was the pastor of it, but for the first time, my mom was hearing the real biblical theology. She was really getting it. She was really understanding it, so much so that my brother called me one day and said, what have you done to our mother? (laughs) Because she was really deeply committed Christian. Okay, now, I said all that to say this. We believe in perseverance of the saints. We believe that those who God chooses are going to persevere in the faith to the end. But you can't make that a requirement for salvation. Because when I went to see my mom this most recent time, and really for several times before that, she was laying there in bed and didn't know who she was, who I was, Where she was, she still thought she was at home, and there was no way that I could talk theology to her. I had to bring it all down to brass tacks for her. This most recent visit, I had to say to her, run to Jesus. There's nothing left here for you to do. Your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, everybody's fine. It's okay for you to go now. Run to Jesus. At that point, I couldn't talk to her about the predestinary will of God. I couldn't talk to her about sovereign election before the foundation of the world. All I could talk to her about was Jesus. He's adequate. Run to Jesus. Now, I said all that to say, it has to be grace. It has to be grace because if it were up to her to do anything she can't she can't even think the right stuff she can't see the right stuff she can't do anything it has to be the preserving grace of God that is keeping her in the state that she's in And I was suddenly struck by the same thing that I was struck with when I went to visit Mike in the hospital three weeks ago. On a Sunday, the last time that we had potluck here, you know that I left early to go downtown to the hospital, Centennial, to go see Mike Patton. When I saw Mike Patton, I knew this was a dying man. He was dead by Tuesday. I did his funeral the following Saturday. When I saw him laying there in his hospital bed, I was struck with the thought, he's doing the best he can right now. And all he could do was lay there, decay, and die. And that was the best he had at this moment. And if salvation... If eternity, if his relationship with God was at all based on him doing anything, then he was lost. Because he's doing the best he can. Everything he's got, he's putting into his next breath. That's all he's got. He doesn't have any more theology left. He doesn't have any more doctrine left. He doesn't have anything but trust Jesus with his eternity. I was struck with the same thing looking at my mom laying there in her veritable vegetative state. I thought she is doing the best she can right now. And that felt to me at that moment like, well, that's really all of us. The best we can do, according to the Bible, is filthy rags. The best we can do is nothing. The best we can do is draw as close as we can to Jesus. And along the way, we're going to have moments when we can do theology, and we're going to have moments when we can do doctrine. We're going to have moments when we can sing and praise. We're going to have moments when we can worship him with our bodies and with our substance. We're going to have moments in our lives where we can do really good. But there's going to be time, I hope not for all of us, that time when the best we can do is just breathe. We don't know who we are. We don't know where we are. And if that is how we get saved, if our ability to save ourselves based on what we do, if that is what the Bible really teaches, then none of us are going to survive it. Every time, every single time, it has to be grace. That thought just rang out to me as I was sitting in the parking lot of the facility in Moundville. And I realized I had probably just said goodbye to my mom for the last time. And I realized she was doing the best she could do. And I turned to my daughter and said, it has to be grace. It has to be. This is an important life lesson. This is an important theological lesson for all the people out there who say it's you. you got to stir up enough faith, hang on to enough faith. You've got to be committed enough to the very end. It's you. you got to do something. you got to have all your theological ducks in a row. You've got to believe Calvinism the way that it was spelled out at the Synod of Dort. No, no, you're all wrong. That's all wrong. It's Jesus and it's grace. If he, in fact chose people from before the foundation of the world, which is a doctrinal, theological, biblical fact, then he's not going to lose those people. And it's not going to be because of what they did. Mike was laying there doing the best he could do. He was giving it his best, and I'm telling you right now, his best was nothing. Nothing. Because he couldn't do anything. He was busy decaying and dying. My mother right now, the conversation among the children is, do we remove the feeding tube and let her go? None of us five want to be the one to say, yeah, pull that plug. We're leaving it up to hospice to decide. That's the state my mom is in. If it is up to her to do anything she's lost which is why my full hope and confidence is in jesus he through his holy spirit in her demonstrated in her life that she believed that she has the faith that we're going to talk about this morning but at this moment i don't think she knows anything At this moment, the best she can do is nothing. And I'm here to tell you, the best you can do doesn't count for anything. You really, genuinely, truly have nothing. And I've known that for years theologically, and I know it doctrinally, and I teach it over and over. We see it in the Bible. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. We just read that a couple weeks ago. But then you see it brought into reality into real life when you're standing in front of dying people. And sometimes when I'm preaching, I stand up here and remember I'm standing in front of dying people because that's where we're all headed. So it has to be grace. It has to be. Paul says it's by grace through faith. So this morning we're going to continue talking about the faith part. Paul is talking in chapter 4 to the Jewish contingent there in Rome. We got as far as verse 13 a couple of weeks ago, but I won't assume that you retained all of that. So we'll start reading at verse 1. Paul reaches all the way back to Abraham in order to demonstrate to the Jewish contingent in Rome that this is the way God has always worked, that it has always been by grace through faith. Faith has always been the methodology through which human beings get righteousness. The very righteousness of God is imputed to people In exchange for faith. And so Paul is really drilling down on that idea. And he is demonstrating that before there was a law. Before Moses. Before Torah. Before there was circumcision. Before there was even an Abrahamic covenant. There was a promise that God made. And then Form the covenant around that promise and that Abraham believed the promise that God made him and God counted that as righteousness so it has always been through all of human history it has always been that righteousness is a result of faith that faith is a result of a gift from God by his spirit And that is an act of grace, because as I keep saying this morning, it has to be grace. It just has to be. There's no other theology anywhere. I don't care how excited the preacher gets. I don't care how erudite or convincing he is. If he's preaching to you anything that has to do with you got to get busy, rev up yourself, Stir up your own faith that it emanates from you. You make the deciding path. Take that leap of faith. How many times have I heard preachers say, God is a gentleman. He won't encroach on you because he's a gentleman. He won't encroach on your life. You have to pick him. You have to choose him. You have to make him Lord and Savior. You have to do it because he won't encroach on you. He better encroach on you. Amen. Yeah. He better get in the way of your lousy little life. Or you will dance your way into hell happily because you don't know how sinful and depraved you are. The equation between the couple of dying people that I've been dealing with lately and us and our works is an equation that I can't avoid. It's just that obvious. All right, let's start reading at chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to read about Abraham and Abraham's faith. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified, I've told you many, many times that the theme of the book of Romans is very much the same question that comes up in the book of Job. The question is, how can a man, which is a worm, a creature, a lowly creature, how can a man be justified with God? And that question presupposes the distance between the absolute, holy, righteous splendor of God that we can't begin to conceive of. That righteous holiness contrasted with you, with everything that you think in your measly little head, with every thought and intention that goes on in your wicked heart, and your decaying bodies that can't do any better than get old, get sick, and die. And then there's God. So how does a man get made righteous does he get made justified with God that's the very theme of this entire letter so Paul reaches back to Abraham and says Abraham was justified but how was he justified for if Abraham was justified by works let's talk about that word for a minute that means by doing stuff now, it doesn't mean by doing the law at this point, because the law didn't exist. doesn't mean by circumcising his children. That's not what justified him, because God hadn't told him to do it yet. He was circumcised after he was given justification. So he was not justified by anything he did. For if Abraham was justified by works, then he'd have something to brag about. But he couldn't brag before God. He couldn't boast before God. And of course, Paul has already said in the first three verses, since there's no one who does good, there's no one who stirred himself up to seek God. If Abraham were justified by his works, then Abraham would have something to boast about. And he's already told us nobody has anything they can boast in. So he's pointing out that that would be a contradiction in his own theology. If he said, nobody has anything, nobody does any good, and then he said, oh, yeah, but Abraham did. Abraham did some works. He was good. So he's eliminating that idea, eliminating the notion that Abraham could have done something that got him justified. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? It says Abraham believed God and it was counted. It was reckoned. The Greek word is translated in the King James, I think, as imputed to him as righteousness. So Abraham believed God. I've told you before the Hebrew word is aman. It's the word from which we get amen. So he basically amened God. Whatever God said to him, he said, yeah, let it be so. Yes, I believe you. And that belief in something that hadn't even happened yet, the promise was, you're going to have a child. You and Sarah, you're going to have a child. Through that child, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. It also included, I'm going to give you this land in perpetuity. It also included... Your offspring are going to be so numerous, if you could count the stars in the heavens, if you could count the sand in the sea, that's how multitudinous your offspring are going to be. I said the word multitudinous, and Conrad gave me one of these. (laughs) So the promise was, you're going to have numerous offspring, they're going to inherit this land, And Abraham doesn't even have a kid, and his wife is near being too old to have children. In fact, in a moment, Paul is going to say that Abraham's body and her body were as good as dead. In other words, they were unable to have children anymore. And God shows up and says, you're going to have a child with your wife, and through that child... The promise that I make to you is going to spread to the whole world so that justification through faith is the standard based on you believing my promise. It's really quite something because that's before there was any instruction to do anything. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted, it was reckoned, it was imputed to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, in other words, to the one who does stuff to get saved, to the one who works, the payment, the wage, is not reckoned as a favor. That word, by the way, is the same word as grace it's not a gift of grace if you do work to get it a couple of weeks ago I gave you the example that I said if Micah works all week and then he goes to Kellen and says time for my paycheck Kellen says no I'm just giving you the opportunity to work you really enjoy it I don't plan to pay you well then Micah's not showing up the next Monday because Kellen would owe Micah a debt because he did the work. Okay, Paul's using that equation and saying, if you do the work so that you obligate God to save you, then his payment to you isn't mercy, isn't grace, isn't a favor, isn't kindness. It's a debt. He owes you. And God owes nobody nothing. Nothing. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, no work, nada, goose egg, zip, zero, does no works for his justification, to that one, the one who believes, who has faith, In him who justifies the ungodly. Okay, there it is. That's that's the key phrase right there. If you have faith in the one who justifies the ungodly. Okay, in order to get that justification, the first qualification is you have to be ungodly. I, I think everybody in the room would have to say, yeah, I qualify as ungodly. But in my ungodliness, through the spirit of God, I can have faith in the one who justifies the ungodly. And in exchange for that faith, he gives me justification, righteousness. That's it. That's the the gospel in a nutshell. I mean, is there any better news than that? Just give up on your works. Just stop thinking that you can obligate God. Just stop working as hard as you can to get yourself justified, to get yourself justified, <laughs> You're not going to get yourself justified or righteousified. No, you have to believe. That's the essence of it. You have to have faith in the one who justifies the ungodly. And then his faith is also imputed as righteousness. So it happened with Abraham as an example so that you understand that this is how God has always, always worked. Just as David, verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, this is what David wrote. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Man, that's a big blessing. Yes. Because if you're anything like me, you know your lawless deeds. If you're anything like me, you wake up nights terrified by where you've been and what you've done. If you're anything like me, you think, how could God save somebody like me? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, but not just forgiven, but whose sins have been covered. I mean, the language that David uses is as far as the east is from the west, that's how far our sins have been thrown away. That's a long way. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So they're forgiven. Then they're covered. Then they never come up. Never brought up again. I have a brother. I've known my brother my whole life. And he likes to bring up those things. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Late night phone calls. Remember the time you. I don't want to think about that. Oh, I forgot about that. I mean, your family, the people who know you well, your husband, your wife, your siblings, your parents. They know they know the stuff. They know how you are. They know what you're like. They're able to bring that stuff up. Remember the time you did that. God, who knows it all, who knows every wicked intention of your heart, every evil thought that ever coursed through your silly little head, he knows it all and he's never gonna bring it up. Just not even gonna take it into account. Why? Don't miss this, because I'm. I'm kind of making light of the fact that he's never going to bring it up, never going to take it into account. Gee, that's good news. But why? Why is he going to both forgive and cover and then never bring it up? Because of how perfect our perfect Savior is. Because of how complete the atonement is. When he forgave us, he utterly forgave us. When he saved us, he completely saved us. John goes on and writes that when we sin, we even have an advocate with the Father. Whoever lives because he's making intercession for us. So even when we sin after coming to the knowledge of the forgiveness of our sin... When we continue in our rebellious ways, we still have a lawyer and advocate at the throne of God pleading our case for us, and he's always making intercession for us. Man, how saved are we? I mean, that's like really, really saved, but it's also really, really saved. The distinction between those two words was. He did it all. He did all of it. He completely and utterly saved us, meaning that we really needed salvation. We really needed for our transgressions to be forgiven and for our sins to be covered. And we really, really needed to be righteousified. We really needed God to put in us the very thing that we couldn't possibly achieve on our own Because doing the best we can is nothing, right? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So, is this blessing then upon the circumcised? Or upon the uncircumcised also. This was a sticking point between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews were those who had the circumcision, which identified them as the particular people of God. They saw the Gentiles as the unwashed, the uncircumcised, those people who haven't been marked by God. Not the particular covenant people of God. But is the blessing of righteousness through faith... Is that blessing only going to be upon the circumcised, or is it also upon the uncircumcised? We say, this is Paul's answer, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. So if his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness, is that a promise that only belongs to the Jews? Here's the answer. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised? or uncircumcised well it was reckoned to Abraham before he was told to be circumcised That's right. which means that he got the righteousness by faith in an uncircumcised state what does that mean logically it means yes God can righteousify uncircumcised people mm-hmm. he did it with Abraham so Paul says well not while he was circumcised But while uncircumcised, and he received the insignia, the sign, the mark of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. Now, all you gentiles in the room, that'd be pretty much everybody. All you gentiles in the room should be really grateful for that bit of theology right there. Yes. Because that bit of theology says that you can also be righteousified by faith. I'm going to keep using that word till it just becomes part of our lexicon, but you can be justified as a result of faith in Christ's finished work. And the evidence goes back to the book of Genesis. The evidence goes all the way back to Abraham, the father of the faithful, the one who received the unconditional promise, the unconditional covenant with God. He received all those good things from God after he was justified. So, therefore, it's just logical, it's just axiomatic that uncircumcised people can also be justified by faith. So verse 12. Well, verse 11 goes together with 12. Well, verse 11 starts with and. Okay, starting reading at verse 10, and I promise I'm not going to say anything of commentary until after verse 12. Maybe. How was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them, and he's the father of circumcision to those who were not only of the circumcision, his direct descendants, the Jews. Oh, I did it. I commented. Never mind. But who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham while he was uncircumcised. So look what Paul just did. He just narrowed down the group of Israel. He just said, Abraham. Is the father of those who are circumcised the same way Abraham was circumcised, but they also have the faith that Abraham had. In that case, Abraham's your father. Because among the Jews, they would all point back to their descendancy, their lineage from Abraham. One of the arguments that the Pharisees had with Jesus when they argued that they'd never been in bondage to any man, they said, we're Abraham's seed. So the distinction, whether it's Jesus or whether it's Paul, is Abraham is your father if you're Jewish, if you're circumcised, and you have the faith of Abraham. When the writer of Hebrews goes through all the heroes of faith and one by one says, they did these things, but they did them by faith. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. So, wherever you look in the Bible, you see this same equation, you see this same thing that faith is the vital element, whether it's the New Testament Christian doctrine and religion, or whether it's the Old Testament Jewish doctrine and religion, faith becomes the central issue time and time again. Belief confidence being able to leave this world knowing that he's got you that's the essence of righteousness verse 13 for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law but through the righteousness of faith In the book of Genesis, God continues making this series of promises, this covenant with Abraham, and then with Isaac, and then with Jacob. And he's doing all of that before there was a Moses, before there was the law. So the promise, the unconditional covenant that was made to Abraham and to his descendants, that through his descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed, that promise here is Stated as that he would be heir to the world because he would be father of all the faithful, regardless of what family, what genealogy, what nation, what tongue, what tribe. Nevertheless, everybody on the planet that has faith becomes a child of Abraham. So in that way, Abraham is becoming the heir to the world. But that didn't happen through the law. And Paul now is going to continue to contrast this idea of justification by the law or justification by faith. And he's going to eliminate any possibility that it can be by the law. Because, now we get back to my opening comments, because if justification comes by the law and the law says do this, what happens when you reach the point in your life where you can no longer do it? Do you lose your salvation? Well, not if it's all grace. Not if it's all God who's doing the saving. Not if the saving part is utterly finished and complete in Christ. I heard a preacher one time years and years ago say, the way that I know we have the correct theology is that our Christian theology gives all the credit and the glory to God. And any so-called sub-Christian theology that says some of that glory belongs to you, you got to do something, you'd be like Abraham earlier here. If he was justified by works, he could boast. You'd be like that. If you did something, some positive thing that contributed to your own justification, then you could brag, you could boast, you'd be getting some of the glory. But the biblical theology, the proper theology is God gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. And we happily get none because we realize who we are, what we are, what we're like. And we're just happy to be counted among the saints. We're just happy. We're just joyful. We're just grateful that God would save us. But he gets the credit. Amen. All right, verse 13. For if the promise of Abraham or to his descendants that he be heir of the world. Well, that was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14, we're finally to new stuff. It's 12 o'clock. That was all introduction. Every single bit of that was review and introduction. Now we can start this morning's sermon. Circumcise your watches. Here we go. It's an old joke, and I went for it. Oh, really? You've never heard that? I'm so happy you heard it now then. Yeah. Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, what does he mean by that? Heirs of the promise. Remember verse 13. This whole upcoming section is going to refer back to verse 13. The promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would be heir to the world. That's the promise that's going to be discussed. If those who were of the law were the heirs, then faith is made void. Again, he's drawing one of his contrasts. He's just spent all this time telling you that righteousness is by faith. The only place to get the righteousness of God is through faith. That's the way it's always been, reaching all the way back to Abraham. It's always been through faith. And then he's saying, if it's by the law, well, then faith is voided. Because, again, it's a debt. It's something that God owes you rather than God doing it for you as a favor, as grace. So, again, I'm going to drive this contrast. Look at the contrast. Paul is saying it's either faith or it's works, and it can't be both. And there's, a again, a whole lot of theology out there that tries to tell you it's both. It's God is gracious, God's good, but he, by his grace, helps you get good enough to get saved. That's the Catholic version of grace, by the way. They tell you that the infusion of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God is for the purpose of allowing you to then be good enough that God saves you based on how good you were. No, that's wrong. That's utterly wrong. The Bible says you're no good in you. And you're not going to be any good. You got no works. You got no righteousness you can bring to the equation. Instead, it's all God, it's all grace. And if those who are of the law are heirs to the promise, then faith is made void and the promise is nullified. So that can't be the case. Verse 15 For the law brings about. Happy times, comfy pillows, and little peeps, marshmallows that you can eat all day. That's not what it says. That's what the law brings. No, we're not with that. No. no,
1: that's
0: not what it says. No, for the law brings about wrath. Okay, so the the folks who are trying to teach you legalism, the folks who are telling you that you got to do some amount of the law, whether that's even Something very common, like you got to tithe. Or something that's common, like you got to keep Sabbath in some way. So we have church on Saturdays. Or they say Sunday's now the Christian Sabbath. And they say that based on we're still keeping the Sabbath. Anything that people do to try to bring you under the strictures of the law in order for you to be justified before God, they are bringing about wrath into your life. Do you remember a couple of years ago when we were reading that the law is the ministry of death? Mm-hmm. You should remember it because for weeks I stood up here hollering, the ministry of death. And Now Paul's writing, it brings about wrath. That's what the law does. So what favor am I doing you If I encourage you to keep the law as a means of justification. Now, let me be very clear again. Do Christians do good works? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But always, always, always those good works are a response to the fact that you're saved. They are never the reason you are saved. You are not justified by your good works. You do good works because you're justified. You do good works in response to the fact that God has been really good to you. He's been gracious. He's been kind. He's been loving to you. Therefore, we're gracious and kind and loving. Well, at least some of us. Why? I didn't mean to look right at you, Kelly, when I said that. So... Doing good works is part and parcel of Christianity. But never, never, never are those good works for the purpose of being justified. They are the result of the fact that God has deposited his Holy Spirit in us, producing faith in us. As a consequence, we are justified because that's imputed to us as a result of that faith. And then we go do good works. Does that make sense? Yes. But the law, if you're going to try to be justified before God by the law, all you're going to get is his wrath. And that's just logical. That just makes sense. Because if you're approaching God on the basis of what you've done, then he has to judge you on everything you've done. And the standard is his perfect holiness. Anybody here think at any point in their life they might have come short of the holiness of God? (laughs) Maybe. Maybe just a little. A fraction. Maybe you've come short of the holiness of God. Okay, well, payment for the fact that you at any point were less than the perfect righteousness and holiness of God is hell forever. The wrath of God. So you can see why Paul would say... The law brings wrath. Of course it does. You're begging God to judge you if you approach him on the basis of, look at how good I am. Because he also then has to look at how bad you are. And he's not just going to judge you on the basis of what you've done, but everything you thought, every missed opportunity, and your complete and utter lack of perfect holiness. And you're not going to be able to stand before that test. You do not want to be judged based on the law because the law brings about wrath. But, this is a really interesting statement, but where there is no law, neither is there any violation of the law. First, let's put that in practical terms. If there is no speed limit posted on a street... Then, if a cop stops you for going over the speed limit. And he says, didn't you see the speed posted up there? And you say, no, there's nothing posted. Well, then technically you haven't broken the law because no law was given. You got that? Now, Paul might be saying here, since he's talking about Abraham, he might be saying Abraham was before the law. The law hadn't come yet. Moses hadn't come yet. Therefore, not only was he justified, but there was no law available for him to break. That might be what he's saying. But I also think, or equally think, that what he's saying is Christ became our substitute in the way that he perfected and completed the law. Just like he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it having fulfilled the law as our substitute, and then having died on the cross, because very important to Pauline theology is that the law was nailed to the cross, the writing of ordinances which was against us, was nailed to his tree and taken out of the way? Well, if that's the fact, then what law is there against you? None. Now think about that for just a moment and let's put it in the context of how saved are you? Not only have your sins been forgiven, not only has your rebellion been covered, not only has he imputed righteousness to you, but he is so guaranteeing that you no longer break his law that he removed the law. And where there is no law, there's no transgression of the law, which means there's simply nothing you can do that can get you unsaved once you've been saved. Because God would have to say, I made a mistake in saving you. He'd have to take back his Holy Spirit, and he'd have to go into the Lamb's Book of Life and erase your name, and he'd have to admit that he made a mistake. Where there is no law, there's no transgression of the law. Where there is no law, there can't be any violation of the law. So Paul just says it and leaves it there. So I think we have to look at the larger corpus of Pauline theology to understand that the law was nailed to the tree of Christ and taken out of the way. But he could also be talking about Abraham in this context and saying that when Abraham was justified, there was also no law for him to violate. Whichever one of those is the correct one, we don't know, but I kind of like them both. I especially like the idea that Christ was such a complete savior. That he not only died for our transgressions, but then he removed the law so that we don't transgress against it. Utter and complete salvation. And on top of that, ever lives to make intercession for us. Oh, and on top of that, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Are you feeling saved yet? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Where there is no law, neither is there violation of the law. So, verse 16, for this reason, because of the law's inability, ineffectiveness, for the fact that it brings about wrath, for this reason, it is by faith. I started an hour ago by saying to you, it has to be grace, because that's the only thing that makes sense. When you view the reality of life, the only thing that makes any logical sense is it has to be grace. Now, Paul has made his argument that it can't be the law that gets you justified. Therefore, justification has to come by faith. It just has to. There's nothing else that makes sense. It's the only logical conclusion. For this reason, it's by faith. That it might be in accordance with grace. Because grace is the underpinning of all Pauline theology. And for salvation to be by grace, then righteousness and justification has to be by faith. It can't be by grace and law. It can't be by grace and your good works. It can't be by God's justification and you justifying yourself. It has to be by grace through faith has to be
1: Yes.
0: Nothing else makes sense. That's Paul's argument. By the way, you're starting to feel a little freer these days of all the religious traditions you grew up with? Oh, yes. I grew up, boy, in the, the Lutheran Church of do stuff. I've described the theology I grew up with as boom, 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 boom. It's just do stuff, do stuff. And yet the theology that's right there in the Bible is you can't be good enough. You can't do anything, but you are fully and completely saved by a full and complete and perfect Savior, and you get genuine righteousness, God's own righteousness, as a result of having faith in that perfect Savior, because the whole thing is wrapped up in grace, and it has to be grace. And if it's by grace, it can't be any other way, because it can't be anything you do Therefore, it has to be by grace through faith, which Paul writes repeatedly. It has to be by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He's already eliminated the boasting. This is standard Pauline theology. He says it time and time again. And yet we struggle to get a hold of it. We want so badly, because we just are legalists at heart, we just want so badly to do something that we can hang on to, that we can point to. Here, I'll demonstrate it. Have you ever done something so bad that you thought God must love you less because you did it? I didn't even ask for hands. A few people volunteered hands. Yeah. You know what kind of thinking that is? That's that thinking that says, God's love for me is dependent on me. But if God's love for you is dependent on you, then you got to stay in His love by doing enough good stuff. And Paul just eliminated that option. God's love for you is based on His Son. And he loves eternally his son who said, I always do those things that please the father. So he loves you because you are in Christ. And that is why he puts Christ in you. That is why you have his Holy Spirit. Because he loved you that much. And his love for you is so perfect, so sacrificial and so eternal that not only can't you do anything to get yourself out of the love of God or decrease the love of God in your life, you can't do anything to improve it. You can't do anything to make God love you more because you can't love more than perfect love. He already loves you with a perfect, eternal, abiding love. How do you improve on that? And if that's true, if he loved you, though he knew you were going to be like this and he loved you anyway, and he killed his son for you anyway, then that's a demonstration that he loves you so much. He's not going to lose you. Now Look, I love my kids, but they will tell you that I corrected them. I disciplined them, but I never stopped loving them. I never lost them. They're always my kids, but I will correct them. And so God will correct you. When you act up and stomp your feet and want to do your own thing, he will treat you like a petulant child. He will will correct you, but he won't lose you. And the tribulation that he brings into your life, he's bringing into your life for the purpose of correcting you, never to lose you. That's the kind of love we're talking about. That's the kind of perfect salvation we're talking about. You're justified. You're made righteous. The law itself that would accuse you is done away with so that you can't even violate it. And he's ever loved you with perfect love. Are you feeling saved yet? Yes. 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 Amen. You certainly should be. We're nearly done. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. In order that the promise, what promise? The promise that was made to Abraham and his descendants that he'd be heir of the world that came to him through the righteousness of faith. In order that the promise may be certain, definite absolute there's no question about it so that the promise may be sure and certain to all the descendants of Abraham not only to those who are of the law the Jews but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all as it is written a father of many Nations, goyim is the word, the Gentiles, many nations of people, not just Jews. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the sight of him who believed. That promise was made by God, whom he believed is God, and Paul says so, even God. And that God gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Now, when Paul said that, he's saying that in the context of the fact that Abraham was aging quickly and his wife was past childbearing and her womb was dead. And yet God could speak life to the dead. Shall we apply it? Before God came into your life, before he deposited his Holy Spirit inside you, before he put you in Christ and Christ in you, before that... I don't care if you were walking around living, acting, eating, doing all your regular stuff. The truth is, you were dead. And you're just not immobilized yet, but you will be. Death is coming for every single one of us, and we are all dead men walking. That's why I used the phrase earlier that my mother was still here among the dead and will someday be among the ever-living And God gives life to the dead. Not just he gives life to the well able. Not just he gives life to those who already have some life and are living. He gives life to the absolutely, totally, both spiritually and physically dead. He's going to resurrect us one day. You want to see life from the dead? That'll be a good day. He gives life to the dead and He calls the things that are not as if they are. He calls into being things which do not exist yet, which is why he could say to Abraham, your descendants are going to be like this, even though Abraham had no children. Abram. Okay, I'm going to be specific. Abram, because I heard your message from that Wednesday night. (laughs) There, I've corrected my mistake. Have you agreed with everything else so far today? Yes. Okay, good. Then I'm doing well. Abram didn't have any children, and God could say, this is your future. You're going to have children. The things that are not, I'm going to call as if they are. That same God can say that you have righteousness, though you don't. That same God can say you are fully, utterly justified and able to stand in the light that no man approaches. Because he can call the things that are not as if they are you want that absolutely sovereign God on your side because that absolutely sovereign God can do and does do absolutely everything necessary for your full and complete salvation and that I keep saying is good good news it's just good so, if you leave here with nothing else, leave with, it has to be grace. It can't be anything in you, because you've got nothing, and you're going to reach the point of being incapable of anything. So you got nothing. It has to be grace. And because it has to be grace, then justification has to be by faith. And that faith has to be by the Holy Spirit. None of it can be by you because it has to be grace. Got that? Got it. Okay. Questions? Comments? No? Corrections? Oh, okay. Just checking. Now, listen, I'm leaving tomorrow. Tom will be here Wednesday night. So come support Tom. Our newest deacon will be standing here next Sunday. Come and support Micah. It is my intention to be back by the following Wednesday. But there are a lot of unknowns at this moment, including my mom. So come here and support these men. Uh, Don't give them a bunch of empty chairs to stare at. All right? And I can't think of a better place to leave you then it has to be grace. That's what I've been saying now for how many years? Let's see, I was ordained in year 2000, Cinco de Mayo. We're coming up on the 19th year of my ordination, which means we're coming up on the 18th year of GCA being a public church. And I think we started on it has to be grace. Mm -hmm. And this many years later, it has to be grace. The message hasn't changed. Say goodbye to the internet congregation.